that's not even the worst VR Google yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, so that's not a big yeah. deal. I mean, really not a big deal. That's yeah. a pretty good day in Google's book if that's <laughs> the only PR they're getting. <laughs>
starting with Google's Project Hug. So um, there's quite some history there. So uh, let me like, allow me some time to lay the groundwork. So starting in 2018, when Fortnite for Android launched, um, Epic Games took the unusual step of exclusively releasing um, the Fortnite app outside of the Google Play Store. And so players had to download an installer directly from Epic's websites um, to play the game. And this allowed Epic to bypass Google's FATS 30% fee, obviously at the cost of some user-friendliness. However, in 2020, so last year, um, Epic finally gave in and put Fortnite on the Google Play Store, reportedly because Google puts third-party software at a severe disadvantage by excessively warning users of potential security issues and malware. Um, and then last summer, a few months later, Google had to remove Fortnite or decided to remove Fortnite of the app of the Play Store because Epic added a feature that allowed players to bypass Google's fee when making in-app purchases. And so Epic tried the same in the App Store and was also kicked off there. Um, and this is what lied at the basis of the current lawsuits that we have between Epic and Apple and Google. And so now... Epic's complaint, new complaint, alleges that Google was so concerned about other developers following Fortnite's lead that it launched a program called Project Hug to ensure that developers would stick to the Google Play Store. And so uh, allegedly the Google Play finance team had calculated that in the worst case scenario, um, so if a lot of other developers would have followed Google, uh, would have followed Epic in their tracks, Google Play could lose out on up to $6 billion by uh, 2022, which is uh, pretty significant. And so the plan of Project Hug was to limit Epic's influence by throwing extra love and promotion to top developers and games. And so in practical terms, that meant spending hundreds of millions of dollars on secret deals with over 20 top developers um, and so the Google documents note that the Project Hug was largely a success and that Google had signed deals with most of it target, its targets, which most notably included Activision Blizzard. Um, and so Google responded to this, not denying it, and it said that, um, app, that its Play Store competes with other app stores on Android devices and that programs that support best-in-class developers are a sign of healthy competition in the space. All right, so... What were your guys' thoughts when you first heard this? Mika, what did you think? Well, I'm, of course, quite a bit disappointed that I didn't receive this hug myself. Yeah, man. I, I, why would that be? Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, like, <laughs> maybe maybe, maybe Lightheart is not in the top 20 developers, maybe, yeah. but we, we'll get there slowly. <laughs> uh, I, mean, like, th I mean, this is obviously pretty bad PR for Google. Yeah. Uh, uh, kind of like the way I think about it is... is uh, one thing is the optics, it's obviously bad, but uh, in the grand scheme of things, there's also kind of the Google-Apple duopoly thing mm. uh, going on. And uh, I mean, they, each company kind of has their own approach, how they keep their uh, position of power. Mm. Uh, maybe time will tell like which approach uh, will be more sustainable. Um, but uh, I think it's kind of part of that bigger discussion um, poor Tim Sweeney with, with his business struggling <laughs> amid all of this is uh, is like he's trying to keep keep this discussion alive yeah poor him barely making money barely scraping by and then having to pay these fat fees to uh, Apple and Google Jan what were your thoughts when you heard this I mean you know big big companies will do what big companies do mm -hmm. they try and protect their interests mm -hmm. I, I don't think any of any of what what we've read or seen is surprising uh, there is way worse thing that these companies have done before. Uh, and so, you know, I think that it's great that it's out there, that it's the information has been revealed. Um, you know, I think it's, it shows every time I see things like that, I, it shows strength of the companies that are actually being, uh, on the other side, in this case, Epic, mm. I think it shows strength of what Epic's is capable of, what, what Epic is providing with developers. And, and look, uh, when you, just like what they've done with with with, with the Epic Game Store and and providing a much more attractive proposition to developers than what Steam provides, uh, you know they they wanted to do it on Android, and I think Google is protecting a turf uh, apparently quite successfully in mm -hmm. this case. Uh, and you know I, I don't think any of us should be surprised that companies like Google um, initiate these type of tactics to protect their interests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
doesn't mean it's good. It's just, it's not surprising. Mm-hmm. Janie and the baby, what do you guys think? My daughter has something to say. Yeah. Um, so I don't think this was necessarily a direct response to Epic um, for a few reasons. Big companies oh. move slow. So overnight, Google couldn't just have created this strategy as a response. I think that Google and Apple are smart enough to understand and see the trends that they're not going to be the only distribution platforms uh, and that they're starting to get competition, not just from an Epic store, but uh, Facebook and Snap. Mm. They're creating their own app stores and and, and also more tech savvy, probably high value players understand how side loading works and responsive mobile web and like there's other um avenues now that i think that developers are getting smart about of like it's i kind of equate it to like people realize that they don't have to pay for mail like mm. people bought like aol to get email and you don't mm. need to pay 30 percent um back to an app store if you can do a good job of acquiring users and distributing your your app across you know, multiple different channels. It's not, it's not 2000, you know, 2012 anymore. This is, we're getting a little bit smarter about this. So I, I see where Epic's coming from, but I, 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 and I don't think that this is a bad play for Google or an Apple. I think that Mm. in in order for them to exist, secondary and third and third party app stores are going to eat uh, into you know, kind of some of their revenue from a from an app developer perspective, and more developers will look for other distribution channels if they can't bring down that thirty percent. Mm. Yeah, Mika, how, how do you look at this from a developer's standpoint? Obviously, you're disappointed that you didn't get chosen, right? But at, at the whole battle around the, the the app stores, I mean, like in the big picture, I think it's safe to say that there will be a time when uh, Apple and Google platform duopoly will no longer be Hmm. as relevant as it is today. Uh, It's trickier to say uh, when and it's trickier to say how exactly Hmm. uh, that'll happen. Um, I think for most developers, uh, small to mid-sized, I don't know, uh, maximum in the hundreds of millions yearly revenue, um, you're still at a position where you kind of get what's available to you. Uh, there isn't really many companies yeah. like Epic who can kind of yeah. fight back. And do you consider uh, like going on the Epic Game Store, for example? Uh, I think it's the largest question of, of uh, especially on Android, uh, what to do with all of these um, alternative app stores. There's Amazon, there's Huawei. Mm-hmm. If you go to China, it's another big jungle over there. Mm-hmm. Um, for now, we actually haven't gone that route yet. In, in the comp- companies I previously worked at, uh, I've also kind of experienced that. Um, but that's something I think each developer has to kind of uh, figure out every six months or so. Mm. Like, is it now relevant to enter a new distribution platform or not? Um, but. Uh, We've been like talking about this for 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 I don't know five mm-hmm. plus years, uh, so I'm not expecting fast changes uh, in the distribution mm-hmm. platforms. Yeah, agreed. Um, and then so these uh, allegations obviously come up in in the court filings. Um, do you guys think? And like I personally know not very much about how the justice system in the U.S. works. Will this have any impact? Is this relevant for what's happening there? Janie, what, what do you think? I think you have most knowledge of, of the U.S. system. Of the U.S. system? Well, I have no legal background. No. <laughs> um, from my very limited history with the judicial system of the United States, I don't think this has a lot of merit. There's kickbacks galore. Facebook and Snap do kickbacks. Uh, you know, Google does kickbacks. I don't think that, you know, the U.S. airs on the side of capitalism. Uh, and so, mm. you know, if Google's leveraging the fact that they have a pretty robust advertising solution, that they have robust analytics, that they they can offer developers other other things and and do uh, you know some 
discounts for leveraging other services too. I mean, Google also packages up their G, their G Suite. Mm. And so to me, it's just product positioning. It's, I don't think it's enough. There's not a lot of merit here for, mm. for Epic, at least on this one, the, the project hugged mm-hmm. aspect of so. mm-hmm. Jan, you agree? Yeah, I mean, if, you know, Epic also need to pick their battles and, um, you know, I think that they have bigger fights uh, than than this one and to, you know, Janie's point, I, this is a hard one to like go after yeah. given that these type of things happen quite mm-hmm. often if we, do, if we know or don't know about yeah. them. So in general, it's not that big a deal for Google and the only worst, the only bad thing is, is basically the PR that it gave or the negative PR. And that's not even the worst PR Google yeah, gets anyway. I mean, so that's not a big yeah. deal. I mean, really not a big deal. That's yeah. a pretty good day in Google's book if that's <laughs> the only PR they're getting. <laughs> yeah. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Then uh, let's go to the to our second topic of the day, remote hiring and working. So uh, last year, early 2020, when the pandemic hit and people got locked down in their homes, the video, go- video games industry seemed better prepared than most to make the switch to remote work. However, researchers have found that companies that went remote suffered more delays in their games than those that managed to keep working in offices. And so the main reasons for that was not that people worked less, which I expected because personally I'm not a very good working from home kind of guy, uh, but uh, actually because people worked more hours, but instead it was a failure of tools and processes that games company used to collaborate. And in addition to getting people to work together remotely. Uh, Yeah, we also, like the games industry has been doing pretty well, has been needing to hire more talent um, and so has to, uh, yeah, needed to find a way to start hiring people remotely. And so that's what I'd like to discuss today. So hiring people remotely and also working with a remote team. I know Jan's passionate about this. Um, So Mika, I heard you say earlier that um, you... We're saying that if people would come to Finland, they could join you. Does that mean that you are not doing any remote work? It doesn't mean that exactly. Um, right now, mostly everyone is remote. Um, okay. I'm actually now at our office, but uh, I'm the only one here. Most of of, of Lightheart's workforce is, uh, is is fully remote, like right now. Uh-huh. But uh, in all of our new hires during the COVID time we have hired with the kind of assumption that once things settle down um everyone is welcome to the office that said actually i I think we kind of uh, work with the hybrid model so even before covid some of us would be maybe one day at the office and four days at home yeah uh, working remotely so i think the hybrid type of a setup is something that we'll do also um like post covid if 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 that kind of thing ever ever happens yeah. um but but I, I uh that said also i think what you said about remote hiring is interesting because i think we're now at 16 or 17 employees uh something like that mm-hmm. and uh i think about half of them we have hired during covid mm-hmm. so we've been effectively hiring remotely most of these people signed before every any anyone actually yeah. met them other than uh, in a in a google hangout meeting or, or a zoom meeting or, uh-huh. or whatever so so in that sense yeah we have done remote uh-huh. hiring all right uh, how about you young yeah i i am um, i think uh, for us it's a bit of a different situation because we started super social last june 2020 as a fully remote company from day one mm-hmm. so hard mm-hmm. for me to say um, if we would have been more productive or less productive if there was an office space. Uh, we are very committed and, and, and excited about building kind of a fully remote, resilient organization. And I think we've been doing a pretty solid job so far. Um, it required us to completely up our game and level up our processes and operation around recruitment. Anyway, we were very obsessed from the beginning about recruitment. And now we spend even more time interviewing, getting to know people. Um, and, you know, we so we have people now working uh, remotely in, from over 20 cities in four countries, six time zones, mostly North America. 
mm-hmm. um, majority of whom are in the U.S. There, we have a few people in Canada, and so you know, I think uh, I don't really focus on what could we have done if we we're in an office space. You mm-hmm. know, I'm focusing on how do we make sure that we build processes that um, really allow our talent to deliver on what they want to build and really empower them. Uh, and I think every company needs to create their own principle. We have a lot of principles around autonomy, you know, creative control um, and, and, and creating an organization where a lot of the decision making can happen by certain individuals versus constantly seeking consensus, which is very difficult to do anyway, let alone remotely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so a lot of decision making are, are, are being given to individuals. Um, and then the second thing, we're just spending enormous amount of time, attention and capital in building a, a sense of community and a, and a, and a unity and a, of culture where our people who join us are not only excited to join us, which is one difficult thing to do, mm-hmm. but are even more excited to remain with us. And I think once more companies are going to go back you know, to normality or working in office spaces, I think... Um, there are going to be advantages and opportunities for companies like Super Social to build remotely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are going to be disadvantages because there are people who just really want that, you know, physical connection, that physical touch. Um, and lastly, I would say, I think the jury is still out there on how do you, at scale, how do you build, um, you know, great interactive experiences that require such a diverse pool of talent from mm-hmm. art to engineering to design let alone all the business side of things and marketing. How do you build games at scale with these type of organizations? But, you know, I'm personally, as a founder and CEO, I'm incredibly excited about that and about really uh, laying the foundations for a scalable way of building fully remote uh, company that builds, you know, next generation interactive experiences. That's very exciting, actually, very inspiring. Would be super interested to hear, like, how do you build sense of community remotely? Like, how do you manage to do that? You know, I think it starts by, number one, caring about it, right? When we started Super Social, in the first week, we wrote the manifesto of the company, but also the values of what do we care about? What do we, what do we want to, how do we want to operate as a team, which I think of as the team culture? And what do we stand for as a company, which I think of as the company values? Um, and then really breaking those down and making sure that, you know, it's really about what do you want people to feel in the organization when they're part of the company? Um, and then in terms of the sense of community, you know, we have recently launched kind of this initiative, which is called Together Internally. And that initiative is led by one of, you know, one of one of the senior people on the team. And really what we do with that initiative, every month we have a calendar of all sorts of activities that we do as a company. Anywhere from, you know, morning yoga sessions to recipe challenges um, to um, uh, happy hours, movie nights, uh, game days, uh, game jams, um, poker nights. Really, So we're building a whole, uh, a whole portfolio of activities that we do together. We never make them mandatory. They're always optional. Anyone wants to come, come. Uh, they're always virtual and they're always funded by Super Social. We don't expect people to spend money on that. Um, and, and I think we're seeing a lot of excitement and, 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 and appreciation from our team. Um, and then we, we, so we just constantly wake up every week, every Monday, and we ask ourselves, what can we do this week, this month for the team to build a sense of community, a sense of connection? And we also allow the team to come up with ideas and figure out what else do they want to do, what doesn't work for them. We also look at Slack as a communication tool, which is basically our nervous system as an organization. And we look at plugins that can create that sense of connection to get to know people. So, for example, um, we do like uh, we use a donut, right, for uh, a prompted kind of semi-spontaneous gathering of two, three people. Um, And then lastly, I think the job of the CEO of a company that is building fully remote or hybrid is to really spend time getting to know people. And, and I do that even though we're, we're, we're not a small company, we're not big. I spend time, you know, talking to every single person on the team. Uh, and I get a lot of ideas and a lot, uh, not necessarily ideas of like, hey, I have an idea for you, Jan. It's more like I'm just talking to the team and things mm. come up. And we turn them into, you know, activations or initiatives. So I think it's just constantly thinking about the culture and creating that community as a product. Some features are going to work. Some features are not going to work and you're going to want to throw them out and you want to experiment to try things out. 
Fascinating. And and just to put that into context, how many are you on the team? Uh, today, we are 23 people full-time. All right. So, Mika, some stuff to take away there. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually like, like think, thinking about it. I think it'll take a little bit to to, to uh, process, process all of that. Uh, I spend a lot yeah. of time, as you can see, thinking about yeah. this stuff. <laughs> so feel free to reach out yeah. anytime. I'm very passionate about yeah. it. And, and I do think that the opportunities of building incredible organizations, fully remote, I'm so excited about it because we can reach talent wherever they are and meet the talent where they are. And instead of like, oh, you got to relocate to Silicon Valley or you got to relocate to New York. I'm in Columbus, Ohio. I haven't met 95% of people on our team physically yet. Hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, like for us, we found that um, working remotely on a live game, it's uh, business as usual. Working remotely on a new game is very difficult. Hmm. Uh, that's something we actually haven't solved. Uh, so that's why we still come to the office uh, when we actually want to make a new game. <laughs> or that's kind of the thinking that we have right now. Um, and I think like like the, the the problems that we are trying to solve right now is how to make the hybrid model work the best possible. So we can kind of like you know have our cake and eat it too, or or, or how you say that uh, there are this the key team members kind of all all can come to the office, but uh, what if we would also like to reach to a talent pool outside of uh, EU? Um, could we like? do this uh, and could we make it work with the hybrid model mm -hmm. um, Jan could you uh, go a bit more into detail on because you talked about giving individuals more responsibility and more power of the decision making power could you give some examples on, on how that works yeah you know I think it's it's first it's not something that we do that is because of being a fully remote organization I think that's just a company principle of how we want to build products. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, one of our development frameworks is, is Super Social Labs, where we have really small teams, uh, really a handful of people working on a game, you know, a designer, a programmer, an artist. And, and not only for us in, with that example, you know, not only for us, it's about allowing them to decide what game they want to work on. Right. They decide the creative concept they would like to pursue versus, you know, me coming and telling them, here is the game you, you need to build. Here is the genre. I come to them and, and ask them, where, you know, what do you think, what experience would you like to create that you think is going to be new, unique, original, differentiated? Um, and then really very quickly going into iteration and prototyping mode. Um, and then empowering them to decide. I'll give you an example, right? Just recently, one of our one of the games in development was supposed to do uh, a community week long playtest, um, and it became clear, I think, from an internal playtest that they're not ready for for that. You know, a bit more open community playtest. Um, and I loved that they made the decision to 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 hold off, mm. right? To me, when you have a team that works on a product that is creative endeavor. And they make the call that an understanding that they're not ready for that next milestone, that comes from that creative autonomy that we provide. Right? So, so it's it's almost like like a muscle of an athlete that you're trying to build in people, especially young creative people. Um, and so when we talk about creative autonomy, creative control is really being in a position where you can decide as the creator creation team, you get to decide what concept you want to pursue. Are you ready to move into those different milestones? And I think that's incredibly empowering for a certain type of, of individual. Mm -hmm. And that sounds actually pretty much one-to-one -one what we are doing as well. Like we have basically a truly flat self-managing organization uh, where kind of the singular unit is, is the game team. So. It sounds actually very similar to, to what you're doing. Well, we're all probably taking inspiration from from the same source. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of Supercell model. I think there is a lot of things that I love about what Supercell are doing. I think there is a lot of things that they do that probably no one else can do uh, because a, an, an organizational model of how you build games is always need to be connected to the right culture, right? Uh, and so uh, uh, it kind of goes hand in hand. And again, like every, any product you consistently need to kind of iterate and improve and refine and make sure that it makes sense then you know how do you do that at scale i think that's that's kind of a, a, a massive mm -hmm. challenge um and and you know i think in that respect supercell 
in terms of their culture, their organization. Um, and it's interesting to, you know, if we can get to someone at Supercell at some point, I'm curious on how are they handling and dealing with either hybrid, remote, um, given the type of organization and the operating culture that they mm -hmm. have. I'm super curious about that, if we can get any speaker from, from that organization at some point, Nico. All right. Message received. I'll work on it. Uh, Janie, what's your point of view here? Yeah, I guess I've been a little quiet. I have gone to two companies during COVID. Um, I have built teams at every company. The half my team at EA were people I worked with at Machine Zone and DraftKings. And then the other half were people that I met through, like I do a really good job, I think on LinkedIn of reaching out to people and uh, networking. Um, so a lot of them were people that I met along the way. And um, I think the disadvantage for people that don't know me or you know someone that is building a team is that I tapped into the people I knew, you know, before I, you know, did any interviews outside of that. And I think that's just the go-to with like, it's hard to get a read on people uh, and potential team members if you don't know much about them, mm -hmm. um, you know, because of COVID. And um, I think on the game, game development side too, yes, yeah, some games did get delayed. Some were successful and stayed on track. Some had major bugs and, you know, probably would have had more, you know, more regular QA going into going into release. I think, and I, I talked a little bit to you, Nico, before we started this podcast today is um, there's, there's the old school wave of game development and there's like the new wave. And the old school is the game designer and the development team all sit and lock themselves in a room and don't talk to anyone and they develop a game and then, you know, Hey, ta-da, here it is. And the new way is you put something out there, you, you, you bring it back in, you iterate and you're working across with all these different teams and it's just hyper iteration and um, which you see a lot in, in more of the mobile game space. And I think that those teams that work that way, don't have a problem in COVID. And I, I'm generalizing with my experience, I guess, from gleaning from EA and DraftKings while while we were in COVID. Um, and people that are having a big problem are the ones that um, already had an issue collaborating because that's not the way that they did things pre-COVID. They didn't collaborate at all because they were more, they wanted to isolate themselves and develop a game and go off and do something. And you know, the, the serendipitous, like meeting someone in the cafeteria or the hallway mm doesn't happen during COVID. So um, those game development teams that work the old school way, I think are hurting or the ones that are delayed are the ones that are producing games that are buggy, you know, getting out of touch with what the market wants, what the players want. Um, so I see that, you know, the old school way is, is, is the old way. It's the pre COVID way, if anything in that, in that way is dying. So. Cool. Fascinating. All right. So if I understand you guys correctly, um, there is a new way of game development where you give or you empower the individual. Um, and it's very important if you want to be successful on, on having a remote team to, you know, build the correct processes, empower everyone, um, and also focus, I guess, as, as Jan said, on the culture. Um, and one of the companies that does that great, which uh, ties nicely into our next topic, is Supercell. So uh, last Monday... Finnish mobile gaming powerhouse Supercell, known for Heyday, Clash of Clans, and Brawl Stars, announced the beta of its new game, Everdale. Uh, the game is available in select countries, like in the Nordics, Canada, and Australia, but fortunately not in Belgium, so I, uh, I haven't been able to try it, and I was too lazy to get like a VPN and stuff. Luckily, we have our own Finn on the on the show. So Mika, you uh, you played it for us, I hope. Yeah, I played it for you. Uh, <laughs> All right. Definitely. Tell us, tell us, what did you think? I've been playing it actually quite a bit for a couple of days. Um, I mean, the game is essentially a co-op city builder. Uh, simply, uh, simply put, you can think of it as a, like a spiritual successor to Heyday, but instead of just having your your village, uh, the whole game is about uh, fulfilling orders with your co-players in your valley. That's how they call their guilds. Mm -hmm. So if anyone played uh, Heyday's Neighborhood der Derby or uh, Township's uh, Regatta, you could think of a game that is essentially 
built like just one game that is around these social mechanics. And uh, notably, the, the, the game uh, Everdale, it's actually pretty hardcore in, in terms of mechanics. As a game, I think like they, they've taken a pretty bold direction with the complexity of the game. Um, it's by no means casual, in my opinion. Um, but as a game, I think it's actually quite good. Uh, I've kind of both seen the concept that they built in development in various different stages in different companies. Uh, I've also played different games that try to do the co-op crafting, co-op city builder mm -hmm. concept. Uh, I think this is probably the best execution of this idea that I've played so far. So that's no small feat by any chance. Mm -hmm. uh, Business-wise, uh, I think time will tell. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the retention was pretty high. Uh, I, I would assume that people who get engaged actually like can play it for a long, long time. But uh, will it be broadly appealing enough that it like, actually can acquire at scale? Uh, will people actually monetize in it? Uh, I think those are kind of the question mm -hmm. marks. This is like a like full on speculation mode. That's what uh, we like but, here, man. Uh, that's what we like, right? Yeah. Yeah. What's what's your uh, opinion on the readiness of the game? What does ready mean? Hey, you're you're the game developer, man. You tell me. I mean, uh, the way that they kind of released it is actually quite interesting. Uh, they had a long alpha, or a, or a open secret beta <laughs> or soft launch, or whatever you call it. So they launched the game actually as, uh, I think it was oh, called yeah, yeah. Valleys and Villages uh, with an unknown company name. So it was yeah, like yeah. this white label soft launch, very secretive, already in September 2020. And uh, they were buying these bursts of users along the way and uh, made like six, seven client updates during the time that led into this release of the actual game but still in soft launch so so it's a it's a very mm -hmm. long-term play mm -hmm. i think uh, in that sense the game is quite complete as a mm -hmm. experience i think I, I i would add that i i'm not uh i i it's not uh available in the us but you know if just building on what mika said if that is the case that the game in terms of complexity of the gameplay is is more comprehensive and it's kind of a, an, a beyond casual that is a very interesting i think um fact to think about because that means that the the evolution and maturity of mobile games right you have supercell that has been around for really helped pioneer what mass mobile gaming looks like and it seems like, at least based on what you're describing, Mika, that Supercell is helping to take mobile gaming to the next level in terms of complexity, duration of play. Um, and if that's the case, I think that's really, really interesting. And if Everdale is successful, it will likely cause a... There's going to be an effect on other studios and other... Um, um, and, other uh, and, and the way big companies, anywhere from EA to Blizzard, the way they think about translating some of their console PCIP into mobile games. Uh, and so in that way, it seems like Supercell yet again, just on the surface, seems like Supercell yet again are, are carving, kind of taking a bold bet and carving a new path. And, you know, um, it's going to be interesting to see. And I look forward to try it out once it's available to download in, in you know, in North America. We should make a meta cost. What is it? Valley? Actually, Valley. Valley at, funny that you mentioned it. Well, funny that you mentioned that because you can't. There's no way to make your own uh, own Valley right now. And actually, oh. actually, like the game, it's, it's pretty funny because if you want to do like many most people want to do, like you have a friend and you want to play with this friend, uh -huh. what you have to do in the beginning, you have to like take upon this Machiavellian challenge where you do some social engineering to gain control of an existing Valley. And yeah, we actually did that. Really? I'm sorry for the other players. So we, yeah, we, yeah, we now control a valley in this game. Uh, so we join you? Easy. <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, it's it's, it's actually. I, I think it's probably something that they'll change yeah, because yeah, must, uh, must be. uh, it's uh, it's kind of uh, not not a not so healthy mechanic to have do in the get, game. That do you get dropped you, into a, a valley, or does everyone start at the same point? Uh, you get dropped into a random valley, and um, like if, like at times they generate new valleys. So uh, you either have to get kicked enough times that you get as a lone person in an in a single valley and you gain the leadership mm. position or like uh, there's a voting system to to vote for the leader of the valley mm. so so you can use all your like high school politics okay uh, to to try to be the the popular person in, uh, <laughs> Come, in the coming from a shingdown i feel like it needs to be like mass chaos and so everyone should start from the same point and just scramble to find the valley you know based upon the resources there like they're you know i would love it if like everyone had to start at the same place and then you know basically go as fast as they could to get to the valley that they wanted but you know yeah if i had to guess what they're gonna develop next in the game i would think that maybe they <laughs> maybe they deal with some of these uh these like social uh, features to deal with, mm -hmm. like valley creation, yeah. and, and you're not really selling me on it though. With well, you have to have your high school politics and blah blah. I'm like, Janie, mm. come on, that's that's super fun. <laughs> <laughs> we all secretly visit. All right, uh, yeah, it's yeah, sure. Mika, what were your thoughts on on, on Yon's idea, where uh, Supercell is like trying to I don't know educate users on on more complex games? I don't think that's their. Uh, goal i i think their goal is honestly what they actually usually say that it is which is to to make great games that last for a long time uh but i think that's like a side effect of that uh they're definitely doing something that many other companies uh are not willing to bet on and also i think like like uh it's very typical of supercell games uh that the quality of the design is actually quite high and uh, I think the, the design of, of Everdale is also it's, it's at a very good level so it's it's beautifully designed game uh, whether you like it or not uh, or whether it's financially a success or not uh, I think it's still mm -hmm. uh, uh, well designed yeah game. just to just to clarify I don't think I don't think even for us I don't think it's never about like you're you it's not about educating or intentionally creating a new genre or something. I think it's mm. just about, you know, Supercell or Super Social or any other company. It's about creating fun, you know, engaging game experiences and game worlds for players. Um, and I think, you know, I'm just I'm just building on what Mika said earlier. And I think that it seems like they're taking a step change of complexity of gameplay. And I think there is a reason probably they're doing that. Um, because I don't, I, I think companies like Supercell are very thoughtful. You're talking about a company that over a decade really only have six games live. So mm -hmm. they are very thoughtful. I'm sure they're very intentional. I'm positive. I don't think anything here is accidental, but it's always coming from fun. But there's also a strategy behind this. Um, and I think the strategy, in my opinion, is tied to the evolution of mobile gaming becoming ever more complex environment. And they're not the only one who is doing that. I mean, look at what, you know, Super Evil Megacorp are doing with, with their games, uh, you know, Riot Games coming into, I mean, it's a step change across the board. Mobile games mm. are just evolving to the next era. It's going to be more complex, more expansive, uh, uh, more multiplayer possibilities. Um, to Mika's point, I think the graphics and aesthetics are absolutely outstanding. Just looking at the game page and the YouTube, uh, what you can expect from a company like Supercell. And so, um, and I would imagine that if they are doing an, a beta launch, probably it's moving in the right direction. But to Mika's point, from a beta launch to a massive success where it, it's a game and a franchise get, can at least generate a billion dollar in, in lifetime revenue, which is probably the minimum of what Supercell would have as a business objective. <laughs> I think that's that's the that's that that's what needs to be seen. Uh, mm. But I'm I'm excited to see that level of ambition even from Supercell, and I'm excited to try it out when it comes out. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment. Uh, and definitely, I think it's worth trying out if you if you like mobile games and uh, if you work in mobile games. But Mika is in Helsinki, also he can gather more intelligence. 
Yeah. Helsinki is a small place. I mean, usually people here tend to know each other quite quite well. So it's a, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a small town. Yeah. It's a wonderful city. I've been there once and it's a wonderful place. Right. Now we only need to get someone from inside Supercell and we'll know everything. All right. Cool. Let's um, move on to today's bonus segment. Hope you guys are ready. Pitch your dream game. So you'll have a short pitch, a short time, about a minute to uh, to pitch your dream game. And so um, you don't have to take into account current technical limitations. So you can go nuts on 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 like the size and, and everything that's possible. Um, and, and yeah, um, at the end, we'll all vote on which one we like most. Um, so let's see. And then, yeah, in, in the absolute best case scenario, um, someone listening to this will get totally inspired and actually, you know, build the game that we just described. So, uh, so let's see what comes out of this. Uh, Mika, why don't you start? Sure. So one of my favorite games is actually Witcher 3. Um, single player experience uh, action RPG game. And I think the standout feature or standout thing in Witcher 3 is the writing and the quest system uh, mm -hmm. that goes together with the writing. And um, I would like to make a game that has the kind of that combines the, the quest system and great writing of Witcher 3 um, and the gameplay of these top down Zeldas of the Super Nintendo and Game Boy era. And uh, this would be an episodic live game. It takes place in this persistent fantasy world. And the catch is that uh, it will have new things to play every month, um, new content in, in the form of, of, of greatly written uh, quests and things that you actually do in the game have a persistent effect on the world. Interesting. All right. Janie, your turn. You know, I don't, you know that my ideas are shit because, you know, I'm a growth person. I have zero creative bone in my body. Um, the, the only things I've been thinking about lately are, I'm, so I start, I got into games because of my father. The, like the only times I could ever get time with my dad is if I played video games with him. <laughs> so like NHL 91 is my jam growing up. And, um, I'm trying to get my four-year-old, my four-and-a-half-year-old daughter into games, but there's there's not there's there's really shitty games out there that, first of all, like family-friendly, or they're either really boring, or the mechanics are actually pretty confusing even for me to try to help her figure <laughs> it out. Um, so I would like to to like NHL 91 was great for me, and I was young enough to figure it out, so the mechanics were fine. Um, so something like that would be would be ideal for to get my four and a half five year old into gaming. And the other thing is, it, when I play games, it's like all business. So I don't have a lot of fun when I play games because I'm a mom. So it's like eeks into my you know my my day to day. But um, if masterclass had it, like a masterclass game aspect where it's like I was learning mm. something and also playing a game because I love masterclass. But the hard thing is what is staring at a screen mm. for an hour to like get something out of it. And I feel like if there were like mini games, in, like in a masterclass style to that would, that would be cool for me to like learn some new skills and, and actually absorb the information. So that's interesting. I'm actually a big believer in like education and via gaming um, and just interactivity. Mm -hmm. I would say my, my 20 year vision is that like kids in school learning history, instead of like having someone talk to them about like the ancient Romans and, and Greeks and Caesar would like, literally like be there in vr helping caesar you know like conquer gaul or stuff like that you know when you have to like yeah. make the decisions you're going to remember that shit right and you're going to understand that shit um yeah. anyway I'm, I'm a big fan of of, yeah. of of educating and just learning through doing and um, i think uh, games are great like way to do that all right jan yeah I'm, i have a deep uh, a deep passion for robotics and i think that i would love to build a game uh, where it's um, it's almost like um, sort of a combination of, of an RPG and a competitive mode where you can essentially design and very quickly build a different type of robotics, like a whole team uh, of robots who basically compete 
based on capabilities. Um, and then you can also like mix and match between different robots that you created uh, with more robots um, that are almost like the, uh, the combination of these capabilities and kind of in a, in, in a beautiful, massive, like uh, infinite size arena, uh, you get to compete um, you know, in different teams, almost like ro in-game robot esports team. And, you know, maybe I'll call the game, you know, Olympus. All right. It's, so it's, but isn't that like a thing that like really exists where teams in, if, of, of universities build like robots and have them battle? You're talking about real robots. I'm talking about a video game. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So just to be oh, clear, like it's something yeah. similar, but then like um, way more capabilities or? Yeah, I mean, that would be a... A, a benchmark from the physical world, I would say. I haven't thought about that actually, but that could well be a benchmark for for what a video game could look like. But you know, I would I envision a, a kind of an adventurous, beautifully looking, you know, graphical game world um, mm. where also the designs and the graphics of the actual robots are way more enticing than yeah. the ones you see in those robotic competition that you're talking about. But yeah. not a bad analogy, to be honest. So I okay. appreciate that. Less, less physical limitations and, and, and you know, uh, yeah, physics exists less, lower gravity, all that stuff. You would, be, you would be amazed with what you can build on Roblox, so. So, I mean, are you telling us that next game of Super Social is going to be like a robot fight dome where you can, you know, do all that stuff? Or is that just a boy dream? Well, it might be my dream, but remember, it's all about creative autonomy to the team. So they may not mm. listen to my dreams. Yes, totally true. All right, so now what's going to happen is we all have to think, okay, which one did we like best? So we have Jans, Janies, and Mikas. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we'll see who gets most votes. I hope we don't have a 2-2 two -two, uh, uh, scoreline. I actually haven't decided yet. I like Mikas. I feel like it's the most well thought out. So I'm going with his. Oh, did I jump the gun? I mean, you know, I'm American. I'm just direct. So, you know. Well, I think it's Mika as well, so that's easy. There you go. So he won. <laughs> I was going to go with, with, with Jans because like, who, who doesn't like robots? That's true. All right. But I guess Mika has won. So a Zelda-like top-down RPG with great, great writing and every decision that you make has an impact on later stages of the game. Um, so listener, if you're looking for a good game to... Uh, to, to build, we already have four people that will, will play it. So uh, that's already a great start. I mean, what else do you want? Um, cool. All right. That uh, rounds up this episode. Jan, Janie, and Mika, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for the insights. Uh, it was great. And listener, if, uh, if you like what you heard, feel free to give us a good rating, um, comment, and subscribe to the, sh to the show. And for more content about the business of games, visit navic.co. One more question, Jan. You said like you have great ideas about um, building autonomous teams. What if people want to get in touch with you? Where, where they can can they find you? Oh, they should just uh, drop me an email on uh, Jan at supersocialinc.com. Jan, Y-O-N, at supersocialinc.com. Best right. way to approach me. Awesome. And if you want to talk to me uh, or other people at Navic, you can, uh, you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. And Jan's also hanging out on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. Um, so yeah, this was the Metacast by Navic and we look forward to speaking to you next week. Cheers. Cheers.